oh my gosh, this is a perfect mix of like Robofunk from 1982 or whatever. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Euro What? Episode number 132 for the week of October 11th, 2021. I'm Ben Smith, and I'm joined today by Mike McComb. Hey, Mike. Hello. And our special guest, Maura Johnston. Hey, Maura. Hi. We are a group of Americans trying to make sense of the Eurovision Song Contest, and this week we'll be talking about Eurovision's intersection with the Billboard Hot 100. Welcome back to the show, Maura. Thank you. It's a delight to be back. It is always great to have you here. Exciting news, everybody. Uh, Host City Now. Yay. Yay. We have been sort of loudly banging on our desks and saying Host City One for about a month because we were supposed to know at like the start of September who this Host City was going to be and uh, RII and the ESC took their time. But we now know uh, it's Torino 2022, which I kind of need to go back to our episode about Host Cities, Mike, just because I I feel like I said it was going to be Torino. So I'm just feeling very proud right now. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, (laughs) Milan's great, but Milan is busy with large arena shows that would be a pain in the butt to move. It's going to be uh, May 10th, 12th, and 14th at the uh, Palace Sport Olimpico. Yes, and uh, if you're already starting to make your travel plans, uh, have fun with that. Checking right before we started recording, uh, hotels in Turin are currently running about a thousand bucks a night for the weekend uh, of the grand final, which... Calm down, hotels. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully prices will calm down once the panic buying has stopped and uh, tickets go on sale and people get shut out. And yeah, uh, I I guess there's a lot of pessimism happening there. But uh, yeah, uh, Maura, were you planning on making the trip to Italy uh, for next year's show? Oh, wow. I would would love to. Um, Unfortunately, that coincides with finals at Boston College where I teach. Oh, no. So it might be Mm, a little rough. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it would be really, really fun to go because I'm sure that there would be a lot to take in. Yeah, I feel like Italy is going to be a fun show next year. Yeah. And, and like, if nothing else, I'm looking forward to seeing what 30 years since the last time they chaotically hosted uh, brings to the party. The 90s revival is back once again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in so many ways. Hooverphonics are already petitioning to be back on. <laughs> <laughs> they do a complete recreation of the opening s- sequence from the 1991 contest with like, <laughs> <laughs> the word art flying across the screen. Oh, <laughs> but Maura, uh, we, we have you on to talk about the Billboard Hot 100 and the current intersection that Eurovision appears to be having with it. Yes, it's very exciting. It's been a while since that happened at all. A quarter century. Which is mind-boggling to me, and we can talk about like the last time it was that Eurovision intersected with the charts in the U.S. But I guess a- as a starter, how do the Billboard charts currently work? So right now, the Hot 100, which is the main singles chart for the U.S., works as in this sort of formula where they take uh, numbers from streaming sales, so like iTunes, but also you know the few physical singles that major labels and other labels might have put out there and cross format radio airplay. So if something gets played a lot on top 40 stations, hot AC, country, hip hop and R&B, anything. Because of the inclusion of radio airplay, it's still weighted in favor of songs that are released as traditional singles 
emphasis tracks that you know get that get played on radio or that get sent to radio or have videos made made of them. But streaming has definitely had much more of an effect on the charts. Um, something that was sort of presaged, I think, in 1998, which we can talk about in a little bit later. But for example, this week there are 12 songs by Drake on the chart, and that's because his album Certified Lover Boy came out a couple of weeks ago. And it just blitzed the entire chart, you know, like because people were streaming every song on that record individually. And so you saw the whole album essentially released as singles, even though not all the songs were getting radio airplay or, you know, maybe they were getting sold on iTunes individually because of the just massive effects of streaming that helps them accrue enough points to get on the Hot 100. And when I say streaming, I mean like on Apple Music, Spotify, YouTube, YouTube Music. And we can talk about that a little bit later, too, because there are some differences there. You me- you mentioned that it it's weighted. So are the different streaming services also weighted? Like, is a Spotify stream worth more than, say, the song appearing on TikTok? Or is streaming all kind of in the same bucket? As far as I know, TikTok actually does not count toward the Hot 100 at this point. They are a little conservative about, you know, what they add. And back in 2018, Billboard and BDS, which are the, you know, and Nielsen, which are the entities that make up the Hot 100, they decided that um, paid streams would be more, would be weighed more heavily than streams for ad-supported or essentially free services. So if you're paying for Spotify premium, your streams count more toward Hot 100 points than if you just have the ad-supported free version of Spotify. Or if you're, like, watching on YouTube and you don't pay for YouTube uh, premium. The TikTok thing is interesting because, obviously, like, TikTok prizes the snippet of the song. And so, you know, in theory, it, it shouldn't count as much. But at the same time, like, there is a threshold for number of seconds that a song count that that count as a play of a song. Um, and I think it falls below, you know, it falls below the, what the TikTok minimum length of a video is now. Okay. Oh, man, there's a lot of math already. Uh- <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's so much math. There's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, because like, I feel like I've seen weird places where Eurovision has popped up in like altered forms on TikTok, because for whatever reason, there was a TikTok challenge that was using a Nightcore remix of Getter Yanni's uh, Estonian entry from like 2011 Rockefeller Street and I and like I was just seeing it pop up and going why is it this song why this one and like I still don't fully have an answer for that one a lot of it is just the hook you know I mean that's the thing about TikTok is that it really has brought back the idea of the hook being so crucial to the success of a song which I think is good because I feel like the 2010s were definitely marked by a lot of just kind of hookless drones that really didn't have an impact. And I feel like if a TikTok creator, you know, makes a video where they have a relatable angle, the song where the, the providence of the song almost doesn't matter because it's just, it, if it's effective, it's something that other creators will want to copy and make, you know, make their own, so to speak. TikTok is interesting because I believe that's where Duncan Lawrence uh, sort of popped up out of nowhere after winning two years ago. Yes. So Duncan actually talked about this in an interview with Billboard back in June of this year. Some Harry Potter fan created a new scene of with using footage of the movies with Malfoy and Hermione, right? 
And so that it was like the shipping of these two characters. And it used loving you as a losing game as the hook. And so Harry Potter fans just, you know, started sharing it. And that led to other people seeing those videos. And then they would use that sound for their own purposes that might not have been necessarily Harry Potter related, but you know, obviously the sentiment loving you is a losing game is a very, it can be a very universal one. And then it showed up on the Spotify top 50. So the thing about the charts on streaming media, streaming music is that oftentimes they will be these kinds of like self-reinforcing entities because discovery on streaming music is still very complicated. I mean, Spotify, I think has really good tools for it. Disclaimer, I'm friends with uh, their data alchemist, Glenn McDonald, who, you know, comes up with a lot of the tools that lead to like your daily mix having, oh my gosh, this is a perfect mix of like Robofunk from 1982 or whatever. <laughs> but like, it still is a very kind of hard to get a handle on thing if you want to see like what's new. So of course, like if you want to see what's new, what's popular, you go to the top 50 global chart, the top 50 chart for your country. So once a new song is in that chart, people will be like, oh, what's this? And then they'll play it and that'll increase its position on the chart. And so it'll become this kind of like, you know, if it's an effective enough song, it'll become a sort of snowball rolling down the hill kind of thing. It's really interesting too, because like, I feel like the 2000s were this period when a lot of songs got really entrenched on the Hot 100 because of the way that pop radio would flow from like, a song being popular on top 40 radio, and then it would kind of graduate to the old folks home that is hot AC, you know, like the mix stations or the light FM stations. And then those stations have very, very glacial airplay shifts. So like Jason Mraz's I'm Yours is a great example of this. Like it was a song that was popular on pop radio, but once it like hit the AC world, it became just like a monster and it didn't leave the chart for over a year. That also seems to kind of coincide with those stations seeming to run a little bit on autopilot. Uh, I, oh, I, for sure. Yeah. Like, I, uh, yeah. I know in, like, the Detroit area and the Cleveland area, like, a lot of these stations where it's just, like, it really does sound like it's a computer DJ. And they're just kind of pulling from the same playlist of maybe 150 songs and just rotating through that. Yeah. There will be, like, shifts and stuff, and stuff will drop out if it's, like, more than five years old. It'll drop from recurrent to to gold or, or what have you. With the consolidation of commercial radio in the US, you definitely have a lot of centralized playlist decisions being made. And that makes for more homogenous charts and slow moving charts. I mean, one thing about TikTok is that even though, obviously, I'm not privy to all of the behind the scenes machinations that like get a song into my feed, and TikTok definitely is I, out of all the various opacities of social media, TikTok, I think, is the most opaque of them all. But at the same time, it is rewarding songs that have an immediate effect on listeners much more quickly than radio, which is still very, obviously, even more top down than ever does. Yeah, and like, especially that moment in around like 2007 is just just thinking about that Jason Mraz song and other stuff that were just everywhere on the radio so you had you had that you had like colby calais of just these very uh, adult contemporary friendly sounds that just hung around forever they hang around forever and there was a rule that was implemented by billboard about these songs to stop the lower reaches of the chart especially from being clogged up with these just unkillable adult contemporary hits 
where if a song has been on the chart for more than 20 weeks and it falls below the top 50, it's taken off. Arcade was number 41 two weeks ago, then it disappeared. It might have dipped to like number 52 or something. Totally. And like we had a period where in addition to like Drake's Loverboy, Kanye's album had sort of a similar all of these tracks are on the chart now bump. And the combination of those two could have easily made it drop below 50. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And so if it gets enough points to come back, it'll come back. I mean, you can see with Mariah Carey and All I Want for Christmas is You bubbling up every December and January into the upper reaches of the chart. Arcade was a two-year journey for that song to start charting over here. Monoskin has rocketed out of nowhere post-Eurovision, specifically with Begin, which is from like years ago. Why are they rocketing up now instead of on a similar two-year delay? So that's another TikTok thing. Begin became like a dance craze over the summer. Um, I'm sure that the spotlight that they got from Eurovision helped the awareness of their song, but um, it became a dance craze over the summer. And then it reached, you know, the the global chart on Spotify, the charts on Apple Music, the curiosity factor about, oh, the song's on the chart, I'll check it out. And then that just snowballed. It's funny because there was another version of Beggin that was a, a much more minor hit 13 years ago or so by a group called Madcon. Oh, yeah. I kind of like that version better, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but like that was, you know, that was very popular. Like I, like I would hear that at the gym a lot, which was like the, the upbeat songs that you can work out to playlist. And yeah, it, it got on the charts and then people started playing it. And I heard it when I was in an Uber last week on Kiss 108, which is the iHeart programmed top 40 station here. So the thing about its chart position right now is that it's number one on US alternative airplay, right? which is drawn from a panel of 80 stations that are monitored by broadcast data systems, which is the automatic um, tracking service that monitors airplay of songs. So there's that, but there's also hot alternative songs. So hot alternative songs is essentially a sifted chart. It's a sifted version of the Hot 100. A song can be number one on hot alternative songs, but not necessarily getting airplay on alternative rock stations. Because Hot Alternative Songs is kind of like, if the Hot 100 was only these bands that are in the bucket that we determine as alternative. So like High Hopes by Panic at the Disco might not have gotten a lot of play on alternative rock stations. And there aren't many alternative rock stations either. But there are a lot of pop stations. Even negligible attention from pop stations can dwarf the amount that alternative rock radio counts. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Even though, yeah, yeah be, this this song that has been tagged as alternative is getting play on a pop station. Therefore, it is rising up the Hot Alternative Songs chart. Right. The best example of this is, I think, from um, 2017 and 18, when um, Meant to Be by BB Rexa and Florida Georgia Line, that was number one on Hot Country Songs for 50 weeks. Oh, wow. Because it was getting airplay on pop stations and hot AC stations. But during that time, the country airplay chart, which is only the radio tracking, had a ton of number ones and was very volatile and stuff. So I think this is probably a case of the tail wagging the dog where it's like, okay, it's number one on alternative songs. Like, let's give it a shot on alternative radio. Because alternative radio has just been this weirdly moribund format. 80 stations in America is not a lot. And... There are definite programming philosophies that are different where some stations will play new stuff or like festival headlining bands and other stations will just be like 
grunge and post grunge, you know, with maybe a little bit of like fallout boy just to leaven the formula. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The radio station that I listened to in high school uh, actually came out of Canada, so they also had the Canadian content uh, restriction on there. But it was just like, 89X, the new rock alternative. And like if you listen to it today, they're still playing the same songs that they were playing when I was in high school. (laughs) And with some like Nelly Furtado and Sarah McLachlan thrown in just to hit that CanCon aspect. It's like, okay. (laughs) Always important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I'm just thinking of like the radio station I remember listening to a ton of in in high school. Cities 97 in the Twin Cities it has like a weird blend of things. And then, uh, Mike, I know that you also read uh, the number ones column. Just reading the story of how Roxette broke in America. Roxette broke in America because a Minnesotan who was like essentially studying abroad in Sweden came back with their album, and somehow it got on the radio, and that's how everyone else started picking it up. Yeah, I miss those stories. I, I remember like hearing about Sly Fox's Let's Go All the Way and how there was just like one DJ in Houston who just like loved that song and was just like beating the drum for it. And then it became one of those great weird singles of the 1980s. I mean, I feel like that's kind of coming back now with the idea that TikTok is like rewarding songs that have something catchy about them. And they might not all be chart toppers. They're not going to all be Old Town Road, but they can be and you know my feelings about the songs aside they can be like an arcade yeah yeah and is the fact that it's a that Began is a cover also kind of feeding into the aspect of it? I'm thinking of Tiffany's I Think We're Alone Now, where that was a cover mm-hmm. and that was also massively successful. Covers are more used as kind of, I don't know, like bait to keep an artist in the news, like the BBC One Live Lounge or Triple J. So you don't really see that as much. But I guess that could help. The fact that it is this classic pop song with another classic sentiment definitely helps fuel that fire. I took a look at previous times that Eurovision entries or artists have charted in the US. The best example of of it is also another Italian song, is Volare. Because in 1958, Volare placed third at Eurovision. It's one of those songs that's entered the canon as kind of one anyways, just because of how ubiquitous it, it went. Volare went to number one on the US Hot 100 in 1958 to the point where it was Billboard's single of the year. It is the first ever winner of Record of the Year and Song of the Year at the Grammys. Wow. I was delighted looking at Record of the Year. It beat out the, the Chipmunt song by Alvin and the Chipmunks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder, and obviously, like, I wasn't alive in 1958, so I can't, you know, totally speak to this, but I do wonder if, like, part of it is just that it is this very sort of like classic pop song classic in the sense of what was big in the forties and early fifties. And like, it wasn't a rock and roll song because obviously like rock and roll was the thing that was encroaching on popular culture and certainly popular music at the time. Even now with the changes, you can never discount the Grammys conservative streak. Uh, Agreed. And I've pulled up the full list of things that were up for record of the year. So you have Volare. You have Perry Como's Catch a Falling Star, Peggy Lee's Fever, Frank Sinatra's Witchcraft, and then Dave Seville and the Chipmunks, the Chipmunk song. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. But some other examples throughout the years. In the 70s, Mosadades' Ares 2 went to number nine and... Mike, you had found out this is apparently in a season three episode of Riverdale. Yeah, yeah. Every time that I 
Google this track that pops up and I'm just like, what, what is going, like, I have not watched one second of Riverdale. And it's like, what is going on with that show? I mean, I just have a distinct, <laughs> clear memory of there being an exercise in Spanish class where we listened to Aries Stu. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's just a Minnesota educational system thing or just an everywhere thing, but like lyrically, it's very straightforward, very simple. So I see why it works as like a good exercise there. Uh, but elsewhere in the 70s, uh, ABBA's Waterloo peaked at number six. Awesome. Yes. Uh, and then <laughs> as long as we're talking about the two main Eurovision artists Americans know about, I checked on Celine Dion. Ne partez pas à moi, given that it's in French, uh, did nothing on the charts. And like, frankly, she wasn't really releasing anything that charted in the U.S. until 1990 when she released the English language Unison album. Gotcha. But I'm sure winning Eurovision was probably helpful in getting that record deal. Yeah, I I would not be surprised because like in 89, so like the year after she won, she released a greatest hits album at the time that featured Ne Partez Pas Moi. But the the most recent up until Arcade popped up was Gina G's Ooh Ah Just a Little Bit in the 90s, getting to number 12 and being nominated for a Best Dance Recording Grammy. That's a good song. It's also very much of like the trends of the charts at that time. Because there was so much of that super peppy Eurodance. Yeah, like that was like a brief moment that we like let Eurodance into America. It was a beautiful time. It was a great moment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that was my musical upbringing. So like I had no idea that it was a Eurovision track until like much, much later. And she's like, oh, I like this song. <laughs> yeah. And like I had the opportunity to be part of the Pop Justice 20 quid prizes here. The, the jury for oh, that nice. with with like one other American and both of us had very fond memories uh, Danny Harl's On a Mountain was one of the songs up this year, which that one's a lot of fun and like feels very riffing on both the the 90s moment where we had like a bunch of Eurodance got led into America and then the very specific moment in the early 2000s where like some random Danish duo would find a vocalist and cover an 80s song, like would do like a trance remix of Heaven or a trance remix of Listen to Your Heart. The What's Up dance version is also very good. The Four Non Blonde yeah. song. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's 90s. <laughs> Just like these brief moments where like these very Eurodancey sounds were just like on the American radio. And like we, we, we were we were both very much fighting for for on a mountain in that discussion. It got knocked out first. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, on the other hand, like we also like the ultimate award went to Laura Vula's You Got Me. Yes. And was just the right choice. Totally. But I mean, considering that Eurodance pop had a moment in the u.s and i don't think it ever fully went away like i think people still have a fondness for it or at least people i hang out with but uh (laughs) like why why was there that gap from 96 to now on eurovision crossover i'm guessing part of it may be just the quality of songs coming out of eurovision during that time but there were some bangers in the mix and yet didn't seem to get any sort of traction It's a really good question. I think part of it is just that Eurovision has been sort of this abstracted thing for Americans up until this year, I would say. I didn't actually know about Gina G's Eurovision history either. um, And neither did you, Mike. And I think that that's kind of part of it is that like it was marketed in in a way that was kind of Eurovision agnostic. It was just something that fit into the trends of the moment. And American pop trends have been very mercurial. And what I think probably more hip hop oriented in recent years than Eurovision is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Eurovision has been. does not really get anywhere near hip hop. No, no. Which is, you know, I mean, it's a reflection of the cultures of Europe and everything, but I think that that's a 
big part of it. It just hasn't been in sync with the ruling Sonics of the moment. But now that the game for that is a little more wide open than it was, you're seeing stuff filter through. You've mentioned that the way that the stats get tabulated now have changed drastically over the last few years. Like, Has the measurement system been kind of evolving over the last 25 years? Absolutely. You know, back in the late 90s, this was when the record industry was enjoying record profits, selling boatloads of albums. And part of that was because of the introduction of what I call the 1899 maxi single. A song would be released to radio, but it wouldn't necessarily be released as a physical single, which up until 1998, in order for a song to make the Hot 100, it had to be released as a physical single because sales and airplay were the two things that made up the calculus. In 1998, the Hot 100 changed from being a singles chart to just a songs chart because of the success of alternative artists like Jewel and Goo Goo Dolls, who were releasing very successful songs that would get airplay on MTV, but that wouldn't make the Hot 100 because there there was no single available of the songs that were being spotlighted and being listened to on radio. So it's funny because of this time of record profit and also forcing people to buy an album in order to hear the one song that they wanted, I feel like was a big contributor to why Napster was developed. If they just wanted You Get What You Give off the New Radicals album, they could just download that. They didn't have to worry about buying the whole album and not liking it as much. That led to Napster's introduction, led to paid downloads becoming a thing with the iTunes Music Store and other outlets. And they were first tracked by Billboard in 2003 as a digital songs chart. And then they got added to the Hot 100 methodology in 2005. So you could buy a song off of NSYNC Celebrity. You could buy The Game Is Over, which is my favorite song on NSYNC Celebrity. And if you bought it in like late 2005, it would count toward that song's Hot 100 position. Okay. So it's like the evolution of like singles being this kind of like top down phenomenon, you know, and it still is obviously because like songs with music video budgets and everything, labels get behind them. But there was more choice in the matter of what listeners could decide was their single from a record. Yeah. So that was 2005. And then in 2007, they added the first streaming services like AOL and Yahoo Music to the Hot 100. So if you were listening to a song on Spinner, it counted. I'm just now remembering streaming things through like MSN music around that time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All of the, you know, portal services had their own music services as well. And then in 2013, services like Spotify got added to the mix. And the most crucial addition was YouTube. YouTube was definitely fueling a lot of songs popularity. Gangnam Style was probably the most crucially uh, denied of being atop the chart because its YouTube streams didn't count. American radio is very English language centric, so it didn't necessarily get as much airplay as its popularity might have reflected. And so YouTube being added definitely shook things up. Five years after that, in 2018, the formula was sort of shifted again so that paid streaming services subscriptions were prioritized over free services. Like I said earlier, like if you pay for Spotify, like your streams of Certified Lover Boy count more than they might if you were just watching those songs on YouTube. 
or playing them through YouTube. Does it take as much to move the needle at this point? Because I'm, I'm just thinking of, like, I don't know the last time that I bought a song or an album, since so much of it is available through streaming services. So is the sales component still going to be as relevant like five years from now? Or is streaming going to end up kind of being the main driving factor on a song's success? So I think that they'll still count. I think that streaming is still the main factor now. Like you, a lot of people have shifted toward all streaming consumptions. The way that they do this now is, let me this is as of 2018. Paid subscription streams are a, are a full point. Ad supported streams are two thirds of a point and then program streams are like a half a point. So program streams are like, you're listening to this radio on Spotify, you know, whatever. For the Billboard 200, which, you know, sort of is a different chart, but it's just interesting to see if you stream 1,250 songs from an album and you have a Spotify premium or Apple Music, that is equivalent to buying an album. So if an album has 12 tracks, you have to listen to it about 100 times. 100 times. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's why there are so many super, super long albums now, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you thought that the 74-minute CD was yeah. a lot of space. <laughs> Oh, welcome to the era of infinite room. <laughs> yeah, I just remember having a conversation with a coworker at the time that they missed the era where artists were putting out like 75 minute CDs because it was around the time of like 2013 where like artists were like putting out like a, a solid 10 or 12 track album that was much more focused. And I greatly prefer that over when we were just trying to pad out the CD length. Even um, like that Metallica thing that, that they released a couple of weeks ago, the Black Album Covers album which has, I think, like 50 tracks. Yeah, I mean, that's... So you only need to listen to that whole thing, you know, what, 24 to- 25 times in order for it to count as a sale. And obviously, the Billboard 200 and the Hot 100 are different charts that, you know, the Billboard 200 measures album consumption, but they are related because you wouldn't have all of those Drake songs or Kanye songs flooding the chart if long albums with multiple songs weren't rewarded. Right. Huh. Yeah. It's wild. And it's definitely going to change again, just because I think that the ways in which people react to and consume music are just ever shifting. But I also think that there are gatekeepers who still want to hold on to their relevance and their importance. And and they also have an ear at a lot of these companies that are doing uh, consumption charts. Rolling Stone launched a suite of charts a couple of years ago. It has slightly different methodologies and slightly different panels. But right now on that chart, Drake is number one. And actually, it's a little more transparent than um, the Billboard charts in that, like, you can see sort of like how things are trending and everything. But it's also formatted so that you have to scroll and then open. So Began is number 46 on the latest Rolling Stone chart that's live on RollingStone.com. But I mean, the fact that there is a credible challenger to the Hot 100 alone is just a sign of how the market has really fluctuated and and blown open. And you can also see at the bottom, they also really do count a lot of older songs because like Dreams by Fleetwood Mac is number 91 and Sweater Weather by The Neighborhood is number 94. Yeah, that one always seems to pop up, I, I guess. 
yeah. it is swe- sweater weather right now. So that, that sort of yeah. makes sense. <laughs> I'm just like, everybody loves listening to Fleetwood Mac Dream. So like that one just being sort of bubbling under does not surprise me at all. Yeah. And that, the video of the of the skateboarding guy with the cranberry oh, juice yeah, really the cranberry helped. juice guy. Yeah. Like if you weren't already listening to that song, the cranberry juice guy immediately. Well, and even like Stevie Nicks made a, you know, when Stevie Nicks is like, copying your meme of your Fleetwood Mac song, you've hit it big. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So with all of these shifts, do we think that Eurovision songs are going to be appearing a little bit more frequently and, or, or I don't know, like dipping its toe into the mainstream with a little less delay, or is this just kind of a fluke that's happening right now? And it's probably going to be another 25 years before we see Eurovision on the charts again. I don't think it'll be 25 years. I mean, I think having Eurovision on Peacock this year really helped the profile of it in the States and helped the profile of the bands. Because I mean, even like that whole sort of kerfuffle with like, why was the lead singer bent over the table? That got on much more American radar than I think anything that's happened in a Eurovision ceremony in a long time. So I think that having it on Peacock and being accessible helped the Netflix movie helped as well just as far as like awareness of eurovision existing i'm not going to say it's like a brave new world or anything but like the light democratization of what makes a popular song thanks to tiktok definitely is a factor here and the global nature of tiktok as well if there's a video that goes super viral that a lot of people are watching and it's by somebody in italy or in the netherlands and it gets to american audiences then that'll help a song sort of like push off into the american chart world and like as we're seeing like if you hear like the the snippets of the hook like you go start streaming on spotify that that helps it get up the charts yep curiosity is such a is such a factor here and the fact that you can go and be like oh this was on you know and it's any tv show right this was on the blacklist this was on good girls like what is it you know that that helps so i think that like the instant try on aspect of pop music and the fact that like those trial balloons result in potential chart positioning is a, is a big factor agreed one final question i had especially given that often the song by a eurovision artist is not necessarily what charts in the u.s with monoskin what's charting right now is begging uh, right so i guess for for both of you who do you think is the best known eurovision artist in the united states and the most well-known eurovision song well, I wish it was I Feed You My Love, but it's, <laughs> it's got to be Waterloo. It has to be Waterloo and ABBA. I mean, I would think. And Valare. I, 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 was, I would argue for Valare just because that one, I think, has just, like, that one's been around since the 50s. It pops up in a lot of compilations. And yeah. again, like, it's a Grammy where I don't think it's necessarily something that people know as a Eurovision song. They just know it's a, a song that's that has music history. Artist-wise, though, I would agree that it might be ABBA. Yeah. Yeah, I think with ABBA, it comes up often in their bio that they won Eurovision. And like that was like Mm -hmm. their stepping stone to fame. You don't get that as much with Celine Dion. And I want to see that Celine Dion fake biopic thing just to see how they handle the Eurovision. I am so excited. Like I am going to be at that that bonkers Aline Diou opening weekend. (laughs) I have the album by the woman who made this movie. Valerie Lemercier, she put out a record on a label called March Records in the 90s, and it's super good Ooh. and uh, really fun, like French pop. So recommended. Awesome. 
In terms of like the most well-known Eurovision song, it's probably Waterloo, but I don't know if people necessarily know that that is the Eurovision song that ABBA had. Like, I, I don't think people necessarily know what are the Eurovision songs, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. I could totally see someone knowing that ABBA is a Eurovision winner and just assuming it's something like Dancing Queen. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Well, Maura, yeah. thank you so much for joining us for this discussion. This has been super enlightening in understanding the Hot 100 more. Where can people find you online? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Mora M-A-U-R-A. And my 15th anniversary on Twitter is next month, which is terrifying. Um, Congratulations, then, question mark. <laughs> I, I think. I, think. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and then I have two radio shows. I have a show every Tuesday night from 10 p.m. to midnight Eastern on Uncertain.fm, which is a streaming radio station based here in the Boston area run by TJ Connolly, who is the DJ for the Boston Marathon, which is happening this taping week. That is called the Pop and Wrestling Connection, where I play pop music and talk about wrestling. And then I have a show every Thursday from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern on WZBC, the station of Boston College, where I teach and that is called more.com slash WZBC. And that link does work for old playlists. And that is sort of a new music spotlight. And I write for the Boston Globe. I have a column there called Omnipop, which I initially talked about all of this. So that's, I think that's it right now. And I'm still like, my book is very slow incoming, but it's coming. Yay. A book on Madonna. So very much looking forward to that one. Former Eurovision performer Madonna. Yes. Yeah, former Eurovision, yeah, former yeah. Eurovision interval act Madonna. Yes. 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 She is now the best known Eurovision artist in the United States. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah right? Oh, yeah. But you also have Justin Timberlake. Mm, true. True. He, so. he did promote the one Trolls song movie. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, Troll, America. Sorry. Not Trolls song movie. Troll mo- Trolls movie song. It's a troll song. Yeah. <laughs> it is a troll song movie, yeah. though, because it's all about the trolls. Like, singing and stuff very true that's gonna do it for this episode of the euro what thanks for listening the euro what podcast is hosted by ben smith that's me and mike lacombe that's me you can follow Euro what on apple podcasts spotify or the podcast app of your choice if you would like to support the show we are also on patreon at patreon.com slash euro what show notes are in the description of this episode and on our website at eurowhat.com if you'd like to contact us, we're at EuroWhat on Twitter, or you can email EuroWhatPodcast at gmail.com. Next time on the EuroWhat, we play Eurovision Inception as we discuss Eurovision songs about Eurovision.